Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. The term that has been thrown around a lot in recent times is social justice. We see it used in protests against gender norms, homophobia, racism and much more besides. The term is virtually inseparable from the jaded social justice warrior filled with rage at a society that seems to favour the rich, the white, the privileged. But somehow, social justice has become politicised and scapegoated, and much of its meaning has been lost in a mire of ad hominem insults. Social justice has come to represent that old chestnut, us, versus them. Much of this conflict stems from the psychological tension that exists in that space of difference, and so that is a theme that I wanted to explore briefly in this episode. It's not really an episode about social justice, although it might highlight some ways in which issues of social injustice emerge from our conceptions of each other, both in the past and in the present. But it's about why those tensions exist, at least in part, and how somehow inherent to the human condition is our framing of difference and our view of the other. From a philosophical perspective, the other is simply the awareness of oneself as existing in the world. This realisation comes early in childhood, typically before the age of two, when a toddler sees herself in a mirror and makes the association between her reflection and herself as one and the same. Awareness of the self as a distinct individual traces its roots to Hegel's description of the constitutive other as a perceptual entity. But soon the individual realises that they are distinct not only as the self, but that there are many others who are different selves, and each of these others is different to us. These differences may arise in the obvious things, like physical appearance, but of course they extend to our personalities, our gifts and talents. But within our small worlds, beginning with our family, we see difference superficially. I'm not so different to my parents or siblings, or my schoolmates and their families. We all share common norms and values, probably religion and food preferences too. We form a homogenous group of like-minded individuals, where the other is accepted, and similar enough that difference is hardly distinct. But otherness eventually appears, even in the small community. Perhaps it is found in the child with a disability, or the new arrivals from abroad whose skin colour and eye shape is different. They are set apart by their accents and different norms and customs which seem strange to us. The schoolyard is brutal and unforgiving of difference. To be an other in the presence of sameness is to be condemned to the hurtful taunts of bullies and those just trying to fit in. And as we grow, difference becomes amplified into hard lines drawn between people and places. For some reason, perhaps adaptive, we hone in on difference. It is threatening, and we are ignorant of similarity and lack acceptance. There is a word used to describe the other, alterity. It means the state of being other or different. It describes diversity and otherness. The act of highlighting the contrast between them and us is known as othering, and sadly, it's not about them, it's about us. Othering can be defined as a way of defining and securing one's own positive identity through stigmatization of an other, and it's a pejorative term. 
It reduces the other to a socially inferior category of person, subordinate to our way of life. Otherness emerges from a wide spectrum of difference. We can list many points of divergence. Race and ethnicity, sexuality, femininity, social class, religion, level of educational attainment, literacy, mental health, crime, deviance, a lifestyle outside of social norms and conventions. We may look the same, but if we act in different ways from them, then we are the other. But unfortunately, difference is not met with universal acceptance. There are always winners and losers in the different stakes, and this imbalance grows over time and becomes embedded within our ways of life, until at some point, it is just the way it is, and the inequality between them and us becomes opaque and beyond our immediate awareness. What do I mean by this? Differences between people are often obvious, but how does this result in opaque inequality? That is, inequality that is there but is so ingrained within our society that we don't even notice it. The other is a social construction. It's created in the imagination by those who control the narrative. The creation of the other reduces the vestiges of humanity to a caricature of difference. This active reduction of the other to a subaltern whose voice is silenced, as has been described by literary scholar Gayatri Spivak, is synonymous with colonialism. This is the tradition of Western people subordinating non-white people and exploiting their lands and resources. The process of othering in colonial history is a process of degradation of indigenous culture. It does this under the guise of civilizing the other through Western-style social and political domination. It establishes norms of governance and dominion that run ripshod over local custom. It psychologically justifies its actions as raising a non-white culture up, lifting it from its barbaric practices, enlightening it with education, science and religion, and sequesters its people in the furtherment of its noble cause. The other is not an equal though, that much is certain. The other is a labourer, a resource to be employed in the interest of the colonial overlord. Oftentimes, the other is a slave. And this was not an isolated practice, not by a long shot. Britain, Spain, Portugal, France, the Netherlands, the United States and others spread their colonies east and west, extending their influence across the globe. But not all colonies became hubs for the slave trade. Expansionism quenches a thirst for cultural and geopolitical dominance. If colonialism justifies its purpose as bringing civility to undeveloped countries, then it does so not in the interest of equality, but in the pursuit of power. The coloniser does not make good on its promise, as the colonised do not have a voice in the conversation. The production of knowledge is the exclusive purview of the dominating entity. The other has no right of knowledge. The other exists outside of the truth. A prescient example comes from Edward Said's exploration of the concept of Orientalism. Said was a professor of literature at Columbia University, and he coined the term Orientalism in his 1978 book of the same name. Orientalism represents the idea of not only colonization, but the subjugation of diversity to a place of otherness. He said it is the patronizing, contemptuous portrayal of the East, a Western attitude toward Middle Eastern, Asian and North African societies. It is embodied in the simplistic and quaint depiction of Eastern culture and Western art and literature. Orientalism creates stereotypical perceptions of those cultures, conflating them into an homogenous conception of the Orient, occurring as, say, a static place in time, rather than as many unique and distinct cultural identities. 
in contrast to the dominant image of Western ideals of masculinity, Orientalism is the framing of Eastern cultures as feminine, irrational and psychologically weak. In one example, French colonials in Algeria would produce postcards of daily life to be sent back to France. These depicted women carrying out daily tasks, however, they were staged. They were stereotypical representations that reflected some Western conception of the local way of life. In the following passage, we hear commentary on the writing of a Western traveller in Istanbul, then Constantinople, during the 19th century. Now, I can't be sure of the author of this work, but it is titled Edward Said and the Production of Knowledge, and I've linked to uh, the full document in the show notes. So, quoting from that text, The stranger wonders whether all those veiled figures in bright-coloured wrappers are masquerades, or nuns, or mad women. One is constrained to stop and meditate upon these strange figures and stranger customs. Here the narrator says, The fact that the Westerner is a stranger is overtly stressed. He is clearly an outsider, but instead of feeling strange and out of place, he instead describes local people and customs as strange. To him, the veiled woman can only stereotypically be nuns or madwoman. He interprets what he sees from the perspectives generated by his experience, refusing to allow for the possibility that there could be traditions that are not distinctly Western, and that these may have as much validity as their Western counterparts. According to Said's discourse, Orientalism is a structure which imposes preconceived notions onto the fabric of Middle Eastern identity, forcing it into a mould that does not fit its realities. In texts like this, we find generalisations and false constructs about the Middle Eastern identity that are damagingly present even today. By inventing and applying such categories of thinking and interpretation, the Orientalist way of thinking has ingrained itself into Western thought in an almost inextricable manner. This passage reminds me of the example that I described in episode 39, Structural Power, on the way that knowledge is produced um, inherent to a culture, I call it knowledge with a capital K. Think of the ways in which this conception of the other in the Middle East has defined conflict and hatred in the last decades. And I challenge you to think of other examples, there really are many. Think of, say, the Gollywog or Sambo and Jemima as Western representations of the other from subjugated colonies. Now, fortunately, many of these artefacts of colonial history and slavery have been removed, but the scars remain. They remain in the structures of societal power, which we have spoken about before. Everything is considered according to the dominant hierarchy, the purveyor of knowledge who sets the rules and stacks the deck in its favour. Some hundreds of years after colonisation, the other remains. But now the other is less distinct, because society has shifted. Western ideals are neoliberal, it trades in freedom and opportunity for all. We are individuals, all of us, empowered to take account for ourselves and to follow our hopes and dreams. And this is where the roots of systemic racism can be traced to, that buried deep within the social currents of a neoliberal society. For the narrative is still controlled by the dominant us, and the other remains the subaltern native, but she is better dressed now and she speaks our language. This is very hard to see unless we look closely at the past and the historical conception of the other. We'll revisit this later. Now I want to turn to an example of otherness and its implications, which you might not have heard before. And while subjugation of the other continues to have far-reaching implications for ethnic minorities in colonised countries around the world, there's an interesting tale to be told of how otherness can ultimately lead to catastrophe on a global scale. This is a brief story of Japan and of America. For centuries, Japan had been a closed country, 
no one from outside was allowed in, and it was a crime for citizens to leave the country. Japan was a largely peaceful place with no outside influence at all. But Japan was not uncivilized in any sense of the term. In fact, it was highly urbanized, literate and organized. Its citizens enjoyed a high standard of living, steeped in cultural traditions and beauty. It hadn't always been at peace, however. It was once filled with warring factions, but these eventually ceded to centralized rule under the self-appointed leadership of warrior Tokugawa, who created a narrative of the other. He called the Gaizan, or outside people. These were perceived as foreign barbarians who came from across the seas, mythologized to exist outside of the human race. Japan was a chosen land populated by chosen people, and to Tokugawa it should remain isolated and pure, untainted by outside influence. Portuguese Christians had converted a number of Japanese citizens for a brief time, but these people were eventually banished, and following that, Japan continued to grow into a populous and culturally sophisticated country, larger and more organized than many in the Western world. But there was one thing that Japan lacked, a modern military. And here is where alterity would ultimately change the course of history. I'm going to read quite a long section here from James Bradley's book Flyboys. He's written an excellent history of the Pacific Air War and the men who flew in it. Now, I read this book many years ago, but this section that I'm about to read to you, it's always stuck with me. I, I don't know why, but I just I guess it introduced me to the way that history informs the present in ways that you wouldn't really think about. You know, the seeds get sown such a long time ago for uh, the way that things will ultimately play out. It's almost maybe a bit more obvious than the butterfly effect, but it's definitely a significant moment in time. So he takes us back to the origins of Japan's entry into World War II and the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. But he goes much further back than that. And it was really just recently in my studies for psychology that I began to think about this concept of the other, and that's when I realized that the other is intrinsically entwined with our story as human beings. So here I'm going to read from Flyboys by James Bradley. On Friday, July 8th, 1853, four US Navy ships bristling with civilization and 61 state-of-the-art cannon entered Tokyo Bay. Atop their masts flew the American flag with 31 stars on a blue field. Martians landing in spaceships with gamma-ray guns would not have caused more of an uproar. Fishermen in the bay were the first to behold the huge, noisy, black-cloud-belching monsters. These men were not even aware of the existence of steam engines, and suddenly there they were in front of them, giant dragons puffing smoke. A general alarm spread across the land. Temple bells rang as fleet-footed messengers spread out to warn that the black ships of the evil men had descended on the land of the gods. The story grew as it spread. The word was that 100,000 devils with white faces were about to overrun the country. The world's largest city lay defenseless before alien guns. People panicked. Families ran from their homes with their valuables on their backs. Japanese newspaper artists sailed out to make sketches of the strange ships and the geisen. Readers scooped up special editions with pictures of the hairy barbarians in their machines. Samurai who had never dressed for warfare worked to scrape rust from their spears. Throngs packed the shrines and temples praying to the gods for deliverance. People trembled and beseeched the gods to once again blow the geyser away with a kamikaze, which is a, like a strong wind. In the drama that unfolded over the next few days, Commodore Perry, who was the commander of the American fleet in the Pacific, played his role masterfully. He remained mysteriously secluded in his cabin like an oriental potentate, refusing to reveal his august presence to the Japanese negotiators. He rebuffed all entreaties to go away or to retreat to Nagasaki. Peary's ships, just 30 miles from the capital, presented an insoluble dilemma for Tokugawa's shogunate. 
Japanese government dealings with barbarians had previously been small private affairs in Nagasaki, with only a few officials even aware of the Gaizen's presence. Now the entire nation knew. Commodore Perry, with his steam engines and powerful cannon, had more mechanised firepower on his four ships than was possessed by the entire nation of Japan. The shogun could not force the Gaizen to leave, and if they ignored Perry's requests, would he bombard the capital? Were there more such powerful ships coming after these? Would the Japanese people take matters into their own hands in revolt? Ayasu Tokugawa's descendant Shogun Ayashi Tokugawa, the barbarian expelling Generalissimo, could not live up to his title. Finally, after days of negotiating, Japanese authorities, authorities agreed to Perry's demand that he be allowed to come ashore to deliver a letter from President Fillmore. When Perry disembarked, ship's cannon boomed and the band struck up Hail Columbia, the expansionists' favourite tune. Two tall, handsome black marines flanked Perry and caused a sensation. The Japanese didn't know black men existed. Thousands of civilians craned their necks for a look at the geysen. For the Americans, it was a trip back in time. The samurai, their hair pulled back in top knots, wore silk dresses and sandals with two dangling swords signifying their rank. Thousands of armour-encased soldier archers with eight-foot longbows and pikes stood by. It was one of history's most extraordinary encounters. Two highly civilised cultures that viewed the other as uncivilised, meeting for the first time. With great ceremony, the Commodore turned over a custom-made gold box in which lay President Fillmore's letter to the Emperor. Upon receiving it, the Japanese hoped that they were now finished with this foreign nuisance and presented Perry with a written response. Perry was taken aback when the last sentence was translated for him as your letter being received, you will now leave. Commodore Perry interpreted this last blunt line as a diplomatic slap at the United States. The Commodore ordered his ships not to sail away, but rather to go further inland, up Tokyo Bay toward the capital. Perhaps, Perry thought, when the Japanese saw four American warships plumbing their channel depths and surveying their shore defences, it would produce a decided influence upon the government and cause a more favourable consideration of the President's letter. A Japanese launch was hastily rowed out to confront the evil men in their belching black ships. A frantic representative of the shogun called out to the commander that the black ships must turn back. It's against Japanese law, the official pleaded, and the commander called back to the official. The United States Navy operates under American law wherever we go. Eight and one half years after Perry's visit, Japan dispatched a warship on a foreign mission of its own. On January 17, 1862, a shocked Nathaniel Savory watched as a ship bristling with cannon flying the rising sun flag anchored in Chichijima's harbour. Diplomats rowed ashore and claimed all of no man's land for Japan. Savory tried his best to argue the case that Japan had no right to his little island, but glancing at the armed warship in the harbour, he realised they had the might and therefore possessed the right. No man's land was Japan's first overseas conquest. Isolation and peace were now part of the past. The Japanese had learned the lesson well. Isn't this fascinating? I'll just have a brief uh, intermission here. Uh, that Bradley's just talking about the way that uh, the Japanese had pretty much been living quite comfortably until they felt threatened. They they realised that there was a whole world out there that was moving at a faster pace, and so they turned inward, and uh, and it really transformed them from being a, a nation, a peaceful nation, into a military one. So I'll continue with this final section. As the Japanese studied the ways of the Westerners, they could plainly see that successful nations were rich ones, and it was clear that rich nations got that way by subjugating non-Christian countries, enslaving their peoples and appropriating their resources. 
China was Korea's traditional protector and had tried to prevent Japanese encroachment on the peninsula. So Japan focused its Hokuichu manifest destiny by targeting China. In traditional samurai fashion, the Japanese army invaded China without a declaration of war, which it later issued on August 1st, 1894. In the Western tradition, the Japanese press called the conflict a religious war fought between a country that is trying to develop civilization and a country that inhibits the progress of civilization. Newspapers serialized accounts of the fighting and sold out every edition. Woodlock, woodblock prints depict the Japanese army men in heroic poses looking suspiciously Western with handlebar moustaches as they gallantly fought the inferior Chinese. Few thought the small island nation would prevail against the intercontinental, sorry, against the continental giant, but Japan's victory stunned the world. And on April 17, 1895, in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, China conceded defeat to its smaller rival. China was forced to cede Taiwan, the Pescadores Islands, and the strategic Liangdong uh, Peninsula in southern Manchuria to Japan. China paid a large indemnity, accepted the full independence of Korea, and accorded the Japanese the same unequal diplomatic and commercial privileges the Westerners had exalted. To the Japanese man in the street, the startling triumph over China swept away the humiliation of the black ships and proved that Japan was a great country. The United States, far from condemning Japan for its aggression, initially complimented it for so quickly grasping the West's lesson. As one Japanese writer proudly noted, the West now realized that civilization is not a monopoly of the white man and that the Japanese too had a character suitable for great achievements in the world. Japan was bursting with patriotic pride. It was the only non-white member of the civilized imperialist club. But to the West, that was exactly the problem. The imperialist club was white. Now Japan had turned the natural order upside down. Less than one month after its victory, Tokyo received a surprise message from Russia that advised Japan to forego its territorial gains on the mainland and return the Liangdong Peninsula to China. The Russians stated further that Germany and France concurred with that friendly council. Japanese leaders could hardly believe it. They had played the imperialist game fair and square. Japan had picked a fight with an uncivilized country, proven its superiority on the battlefield, and received concessions that were its due. Tokyo appealed to the British and the Americans. Surely they would see the unfairness of the Russian demand. But the Anglo-Americans sided with their Western counterparts and told Japan not to rock the boat. It was as if the Japanese had won Soccer's World Cup only to have it, ta only to have it taken away by a biased referee because of the colour of their skin. Japan mourned the stab in the back as the shame of Liangdong, and when Russia cynically grabbed the Liangdong Peninsula for itself and none of the Western powers complained, shame turned to fury. Proud Japan redoubled its efforts to become a civilized, rich country. Greater taxes, taxes were levied to build a stronger military, and to gain the world's respect, Japan's next target would be a western country. The patient rulers of the ancient land where the sun originated would bide their time. Japan would wait until the next century to flex its muscle. Then it would surprise a certain western navy found sleeping in a harbor on an infamous and bloody morning. Yukichi Fukuzawa, a literary scholar and historian during the 19th century, wrote this in his uh, book Japan and Modern History. He said, when others use violence, we must be violent too. The kindling at that time had been laid for a fire fueled by otherness, and the spark that would set it ablaze would come just a few decades later, on that December morning in 1941. It's been difficult to contemplate this topic because the reality is... I am not the other, in my homeland of New Zealand at least. I was born into a white middle class family. 
the system, which is a collective term for the social and structural forces of society, things like education and healthcare and the criminal justice systems. They were designed by people like me, for people like me, in a land abundant with opportunity. I was the ideal client, the model citizen. But I didn't even realize it. I didn't notice that was the case, and none of the people that I grew up with did. I didn't notice that the Māori children in my neighborhood or in my class were othered by a system which was optimized for me. Society said that they were poor and did not achieve as much academically because, say, they were lazy or maybe stupid. We all have the equal opportunities in this abundant land, so the story went. So it must only be for those reasons that those children and their families were not flourishing like me and my fellow white citizens. We didn't realize that the system was built on a legacy of cultural abuse, of alienation and othering of the Māori people. We built museums to poke and prod at our history and to pat ourselves on the back for bringing civilization to the others in the form of Western ideals and a treaty that overpromised and underdelivered. And we celebrate our othering, yet fail to make the connection between a history of subjugation and a present reality of overrepresentation and crime, abuse, and mental health and suicide. We built a system in which one group is destined to fail because it is not designed to accommodate the needs and the values of others. We've commoditized culture, just as the French photographers did of an Algerian woman a few hundred years ago. So does this reality then make me racist? Well, I don't feel racist, but othering is insidious. It's insidiously racist. So my obligation is to at least try to understand this and make sense of history and the ways in which a post-colonial neoliberal conception of the other has led to a present where real harms do occur in a system in which I'm a participant, if not an enabler. This is obviously a, a complex and sensitive topic with many avenues to explore in much more detail, and I do hope to come back to that later, hopefully with a guest who can enlighten me on, on some of these topics. But for now, I, I just wanted to summon the other into our consciousness to draw it to your attention so that we may begin to see the damage that has been done and continues to be done by our fragile human pathology, the way that we fortify our social groups and, and we other those who are excluded through our contemptuous constructions of difference. And to move beyond this cultural center of gravity, it requires humility and openness and an acceptance of the past and the present and letting go of those notions of us and them. Let me close with these words from Spivak. She says, It is essential to remain open-hearted, not to attempt to recreate the other narcissistically in one's own image, but generously, with care and attention. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the Here and Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>